This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hello and welcome to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today we're talking all things Saudi Arabia with someone who's been there, seen it, but thankfully hasn't made his own big money move there just yet. We'll also be discussing Luis Rubiales and his departure from the Spanish FA. We'll be looking ahead to England and Scotland and joining me, Tom Clark, for all of that. As usual on a Monday, we've got Alison Rudd and making his Game Podcast debut. It's Tom Kershaw. Welcome to the show, Tom. Honoured to be here. Honoured, that's what we like to hear. <laughs> Alison, why don't you have that level of respect for the podcast anymore? Just turn up whenever you want, willy It's nothing better than taking the Jubilee line on a Monday morning. Exactly, that's the excitement we want. But before we look to the future and all of those things, uh, we've got to look to the past and England's one or draw with Ukraine. And joining us to discuss that this morning is Martin Hardy, who was there covering the match for the Times and the Sunday Times. Now, I was in the editing chair yesterday, and I spoke to Martin, who had some big, big news when he landed back in the UK by going to Greg's straight away, like a true northerner that he is. Uh, so, Martin, the first question is how you've started your day on Monday. Greg's again, another steak bake? No, no, I haven't. Ross Noble, the Teesside comedian who I once saw, did say that in the northeast. The Greggs are so strategically uh, placed that as soon as you've finished eating one, you're at the next one, and you can therefore start another one, um, and you can't live your life by Greggs. It is basically about five yards outside of uh, arrivals in the north, in Newcastle International Airport. So um, given that there was quite a bit going on with um, Elliot Anderson's future, which I'm sure we'll come to, and, uh, and the situa- situation with Anthony as well, there was only one place to stop and work, um, and it was kind of welcome home to the northeast. Um, uh, in uh, in its usual fashion. Well, I mean, as a northern myself, that is mission complete now because I'm now hosting a football podcast that's sponsored by Greg's. I mean, I can quit. <laughs> There's nothing left for me to do in journalism. Uh, I think Greg's. the catch line is you need your steak, bacon, cup of tea to get through the day. Exactly. Uh, and Greg's, if you're listening, it's 1 London Bridge Street, SE1, uh, the news building. So, yeah, send any promotional gear my way. Uh, now, Martin, on to slightly less important matters than steak bakes. Um, England's one all draw with Ukraine. You were there. Um, I wanted to ask you first about the atmosphere because when we were chatting yesterday um, and discussing the plans and the pieces that you can read on the Times website now, you said you were really taken aback by the atmosphere and the Ukraine fans, weren't you? No, it was. there was at times it felt really emotional. Um, you had to remind yourself that you were in Poland 
Um, the, the, the spelling is Rocklaw, but the pronunciation is Wrocław um, in the southwest of Poland, the Tarzinski Arena. And you are fundamentally with 40,000 uh, Ukrainian refugees. I think the, the population of the, the region is about 700,000. And it was said there are about 300,000 uh, refugees have come from Ukraine because of because of the, the, the war um, that uh, Putin and Russia have waged upon the Ukrainian people. So that, that you would see peace would be the logo on the scoreboard. Um, just before kickoff, all the supporters held up uh, yellow and blue cardboard flags of the Ukraine. And you could just feel this huge welter of emotion and um, kind of you're there as an England reporter. But there was a, certainly for me, you thought it, this would be some scene just to see Ukraine score. Now, I'm sure we'll come to the game and it was very much England had possession for about 10 or 15 minutes at the start. But as soon as... Uh, Ukraine got in the England half. The noise was amazing, and that desire to to, to kind of the, the it, it, it was a game which felt about more than just the football. So when Zinchenko scored, um, that felt symbolic of uh, kind of Ukraine spirit, and the noise was f- phenomenal. It kind of took you back, took your breath away. You realised you were, you were in the middle of something that very very significant, um, and by the finish when players were leaving when Zinchenko got substituted with about 10, 15 minutes to go. He was waving his arms and the crowd would get another lease of life. I think it's the only time I've ever been prepared to accept supporters doing a Mexican wave, which kind of swept around the, the, the stadium sporadically. And when, when the point was, uh, when the game finished, there was another great show of emotion from the fans. It was, it was just incredible to be there, to, 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 to feel you are with 40,000 people who have been bombed away from their home but are still here in spirit and in body and kind of uh, showing great pride in their, in their country through through their football team. Mm, absolutely. Lots of factors off the pitch but on, on it, it, it did feel like another performance that potentially uh, pushes us towards a narrative of Gareth Southgate being a little bit uh, inactive on the sidelines, not being able to change games. Alison, I know this is something you've talked about before so I'm going to come to you after Martin. <coughs> Martin, in, in the ground... Obviously, you know, slightly distracted by that amazing atmosphere, but the England's performance itself—did it feel a little bit stilted? Yeah, no, absolutely, it did. Um, I don't want to contradict myself too much here. That you would say there was only probably two players who played at anywhere near the top level. One being Kyle Walker, who was excellent, and the other being Harry Kane, who kind of has that role of I don't get enough service, so therefore I will provide the service to other people to score and uh, getting them out of a bit of a hole, which we have seen kind of that role for England centre forwards over the years you wanted far more from James Madison who was given the left forward role you might say the left winger role and that seemed to complicate matters because he kept dropping inside and he was taking the space that Jude Bellingham would have wanted and Ben Chill didn't really seem to link up with them too so in a game where um, Ukraine were very happy to felt like a bit of speed would have made a difference but then Gareth afterwards says James Madison has been absolutely flying all week in training, so they've tried to do something a little bit different. Is there a role for Jordan Henderson in that team? Potentially his time is ticking away. But then I listened to an interview with uh, Martin Johnson last week, and he was talking about winning the World Cup um, in rugby, and I am very much a... I love to see teams play with flair and style, but his his argument very much which you can throw onto it difficult qualification game is you win, you get your result and you move through to the next the next round. And there was a level of that with which Gareth South a point here. 
we are that bit closer. Some of the younger players have now played in a hostile environment um, against a team that's quite prepared to sit deep. So, yeah, look at it two ways. One, were they too defensive, perhaps, but at the same time, they found a bit um, to, to eke out the point that they needed. The other thing is we do go on about how this is another golden generation, but then you look and say, well, Harry Maguire's playing centre-half and he can't get a game for Manchester United. Um, after Harry Kane, there's not a great deal of backup at the centre-forward position. John Henderson's getting a bit old. There's not necessarily a natural left-back to come in for Luke Shaw. So it's not quite sometimes as strong a squad, perhaps, as people would have you believe. Doom mongering, you need another steak bake, Martin. You it's far too depressing. Just on, on one, My steak bake levels are dropping, unfortunately. <laughs> on one of those topics that Martin mentions, Alison, I wanted to ask about James Madison because Gareth Southgate is both right that he has been absolutely flying and part of this wonderful Tottenham team that we're getting very excited about, but it does also feel like he's a player that just doesn't you can't quite find a role in him for him in this team. Would you agree, Alison? Well, you can. I mean, just because you don't against Ukraine, who, if you strip away all the factors that Martin beautifully explained, which was that, yes, atmosphere-wise and emotionally, it was a very different type of game. And I bet you there were some England fans who probably wanted in some way Ukraine to win because it felt like something bigger was happening than yeah. football. So th- these are difficult things for the players and the manager to to cope with. But I, I, I think... On, on a football level, Ukraine, um, their defence was so intense and they concentrated so well. They suffocated space. They were, in, you know, it was entirely about defend in depth, concentrate, and you might get something on the break, which is exactly what happened. You, uh, you can, you, there are different ways of handling that if you're the, the manager who's supposed to be providing the the goals and the entertainment and are the better team on paper um and i think you can just you, you there's a there's an argument for saying well just having madison on the pitch that's all you need if we play our most entertaining players they'll find a way but that that isn't that is not the case and this is the biggest problem with being an international manager is how you take what you see so southgate has seen as to, Tom, as you point out, he has seen James Madison flying, not only in training, but flying for Tottenham and being integral to this new mood at Spurs where they now believe they're just going to outscore any team they play and they're going to do it with thrilling, uh, risky football, which is a very, very specific mindset. You can't just pluck one player from that and plonk it into another team and expect it to work, first of all. But you've that's the point of international management. That's the puzzle. I mean, you're not work. You're not actually working with the players much. You're trying to work out a puzzle. Jude Bellingham, equally somebody who is flying at the moment with Real Madrid, and you plonk him on the pitch and think, well, we've got we've got Madison, we've got Bellingham. What can possibly go wrong? It didn't work because club football and international football are just so different. Elit Bellingham for. Real Madrid is someone who can dominate a game because of his physicality and his attitude and the the way the team gravitate to him and expect him to do something and you can you can you can use your physicality and power forward and make runs in club football that you tend not to be able to do in an international game where it's often cat and mouse and completely different factors are at play you know, 
that game that Martin was at was almost the opposite of a standard league game because of because of the politics mm. and the league system of qualification and what is needed and what is not needed. It was a standalone game for honour and other things. It's not a league league football match. It, it was very different. And I think Southgate, I I don't think he's... He's very good at solving some puzzles. But he's not very good at translating the, the beauty and potential of individuals at their club level and making them work at international level. And maybe maybe it was simply a case of the formation was wrong. It didn't feel right to me. 4-3-3 three, three, felt like it was cramming lots of people into places they shouldn't be. We needed to find a way to give... To allow Madison to be influential and for Bellingham to have space to run into and to express himself. And instead, they they were almost squeezed out of it. And his solution seemed to be, well, I'll take Bellingham off and put Rashford on, which isn't really helping anybody. It's not it's not teaching you how to make the future of this England team look mm. like it could happen. Put the quick guy on who's in form and hope for, hope for the best a little bit. Well, it's not these aren't terrible decisions, but they're not I think it's I think it's a shame actually that who are who are the two players that are spoke that are English that are spoken about positively the most at the moment in a sort of <gasps> gasp way. Mm. They're belling right now it's Bellingham and Madison, isn't yeah. it? And yet is it a coincidence that both of them were actually really quite disappointing? Didn't see enough of the ball. Well, you talk about a puzzle and uh, jigsaw pieces and things and Gareth Southgate might be looking to give himself another jigsaw piece for their puzzle particularly in midfield uh, in the form of Elliot Anderson the midfielder who was in Scotland's squad for their match against Cyprus pulled out with a knee injury and that obs- absence sorry offered hope that he could switch countries that's right Martin isn't it because that was the subject of your piece uh, today that you can read on the Times website now uh, and you spoke to Gareth Southgate about Elliot, Elliot Anderson didn't you? Yeah and it was Probably quite surprised me so forthright in a player that had been with the Scotland squad, you know, a matter of days earlier, withdrew um, to the consternation of Steve Clark with, a, I think, it was a knee injury, um, and now Gareth Southgate was in Ukraine. Saying, yeah, he's a player that we like. It's almost like the talking, the talking as club managers. Like this is a player we'd like. We wanted to play for England and Elliot, born and bred in Whitley Bay, but has a Scottish grandparent, um, which has allowed him to play a junior, well, under 16, under 17, under 18 level for Scotland, but has linked up with England under 21s in the past. So he has the possibility of playing for either side. Um, As I said, it was quite... um, Steve Clark didn't seem particularly pleased when he was talking about that, and then suddenly Gareth Southgate says, yeah, we want him, we're looking into this at the minute. Um. Uh, Elliot Anderson is back in the northeast. Has been taking uh, treatment for his knee injury. As far as I am aware, he will be playing for Newcastle against Brentford on Saturday, which will probably wind up Steve Clark a little bit more. Um, and I think the phrase I would use is his international future is up in the air at the minute, and that may suggest, but by the bits of evidence we have, that England looks like it could be his uh, his choice of international destination for his for his future. But this is a guy that's not, you know, we we have this discussion around switching allegiances before. This isn't a guy, say, in the mould of Declan Rice in terms of the the hype that has perhaps come with him. He's slightly come a bit out of left field, isn't it? In terms of your role covering Newcastle then, 
you know, what what to, what do we make of him as a player? Should England fans be getting excited about another solution to maybe the Jordan Henderson role going forward? Well, it's interesting. I'll try and keep this brief, but I've been aware of Elliot for a long time. Um, there was a, a a young player called Taylor Asset, and there was a 14-year-old who died playing for Cram. But sorry, who was a Cramling Juniors player who died in his sleep, and I was. A, very, very sadly, there was a charity game which I was at, which was when Newcastle under-16's academy played against Cromley Juniors. And this is, what, six or seven years ago. And Elliot played that day, but he was only 13. So he was playing against lads who were two years older than him. And you th- immediately you know that he's there playing in that game because they think a great deal of him. He was smaller than everybody else, but what stood out was he wanted the ball all the time and he was particularly clever on it when he got it. Um you fast forward to a debut under Steve Bruce in the FA Cup at Arsenal, which he did well in, and then a loan spell at Bristol Rovers. Um, and you may recall the final day of that remarkable season when Bristol Rovers won 7-0 against Scunthorpe to, and they needed to better Northampton's result by five goals to get promoted. And Elliot Anderson, who already has insist, scores the winning header with five minutes to go. That gets Bristol Rovers promoted. There was a pitch invasion. He's mobbed. And in the streets of Bristol last night, they are singing Geordie Maradona to the tune of the conga. Um, uh, so that kind of made everybody sit up and notice. He scored seven goals and six assists at his time there. Came back to Newcastle and when um, Eddie Howe was in charge, said, I really like this lad. Um, and has subsequently stopped him going on loan last season uh, to, and thought he would develop better within the confines of the club. I think there was a bit of frustration on the part of Elliot Anderson and his family that they would have liked him to have played first-team football. Uh, how Eddie Howe speaks very well of him, says, look, he's, he's skillful, can pick a pass, but he's also quite spiky, can be aggressive. If you were looking at the 4-3-3 system favored by many managers at the moment, you would say he could play right or left of the centre three and he could play right or left of the, the off the centre forward as well, which he has done. In terms of development, Newcastle six, I think it's six star appearances, but 27 substitute appearances and came back by his own admission much stronger in the summer, um, scored four goals in pre-season training and is knocking very, very loudly on the door to get a start despite the arrival of £52 million um, to Nali. So we'll see where he goes. He's Again, it's four substitute appearances and he's been a little bit unfortunate to develop at Newcastle last season. He was picked to start against Liverpool um, at St James's Park and then Nick Pope gets sent off after 20 minutes and the fall guy is Elliot Anderson he scores what he thinks is the winning goal at Nottingham Forest when he cast in the Premier League last season with this blinding header and it's the one that gets disallowed because for a really dodgy offside because the defender's clearance was not deliberate when it went to him um, so he's been a little bit unfortunate he's not to suggest he's a Declan Rice I think would be pushing it far 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 too far but he is a player with great potential um, great desire and drive uh, and you p- perhaps more come back to Gareth Southgate saying what is it 33% of players are around that in the Premier League or English so therefore if you've got one that's in or around Newcastle United's first team and is only 20 and has potentially very good years in front of him then he, then he is a player that you're going to want to be able to pick in the future we will see what the future holds for Elliot Anderson. Martin Hardy, I hope the future for you holds uh, some kind of tasty pastry at some point coming soon. Uh, thank you very much for joining us on the game. Speak soon. Cheers, thanks. Now, another piece that you can read on the Times website now is looking forward to England's epic friendly clash with Scotland on Tuesday. And the piece in question is headlined, England have the chance to spoil Scotland's party once again. 
And the author of that piece is Scottish football correspondent Michael Grant, who joins us now. And as usual for a Scott, it sounds like you're optimistic, Michael, about this chance to uh, <laughs> to uh, show England what you're made of. Yeah, I, I must stress, though, that um, that piece is uh, based around a, a 5-0 England win at Hamden. So, you know, I'm, I'm not entirely a, a cheerleader from Scotland. I, I do acknowledge that you've had occasional successes against us in the past. Listen, Michael, there's no Gregor on this show. You're, you're down, you're, you're isolated here. There's no Johnny Northcroft. I asked him to come on and, you know, make the case for you Scots, and they said, nah, we'll leave it to Michael. So you're on, you're out on your own. So this now is the time to get patriotic, if ever there was well, I'll tell you, you will laugh at this, but um, after we had left, uh, the press guys had left the stadium in Larnaca on Friday night after the 3-0 win over Cyprus, um, had a little beer to unwind and decompress, and uh, quite soon the the conversation got not only to the finals in uh, Germany next summer, but the possibility of Scotland qualifying out of their section, which, of course, we've never done a tournament, either a World Cup or a Euros, uh, qualifying from the section and possibly going all the way to the semi-finals as Wales did in 2016. So we still have the old traditional inclination to get miles ahead of ourselves. We haven't formally qualified yet. But uh, here we are. Some of us had us in the semi-finals on uh, Friday evening. That is great to hear. Dare I suggest that perhaps it was more than one beer or two that the, <laughs> the conversation headed that way. But I won't, don't want to cast aspersions. Now, but on, but on that subject, you know, you mentioned Steve Clark and you know, a slight enthusiasm around Scotland. Going into this game, is there an added sense of um, enthusiasm, if you like, about taking on the old enemy when, when Scotland are you know, at a high point in recent years in terms of their performances on the pitch? Yeah, although it has been a strange uh, build-up to this game because um, obviously it is a double-header for both nations with with a a qualifier coming first and then this friendly second. So, you know, genuinely and probably uh, uniquely in in the history of this fixture, you know, the build-up was kind of overshadowed by another another game. It, It really was more important for Scotland to win in Cyprus and to keep that incredible momentum they've got going at the top of um, Group A. So, but that's now out of the way and they can they can look to England. Um, I think really the the uh, obviously the, 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 this game means a lot more to supporters and to people of a certain generation, especially than it would to young English and even Scottish players. You know, it's not been a a feature of their careers that an annual Scotland-England game is a big deal or or that it settles any scores or proves any point. You know, for, for those of us who grew up when it was far more significant, you know, there is still a bit of magic about the game. And, and you know, we're looking forward to, to, to tomorrow night. I think for Clark and his players, or, or certainly for the players, it'll be, uh, you know, a bit of... A bit of determination to to uh, to show that they're England that they're a good side, and and to show that um, you know you 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 aren't going to come to Hamden and kind of burst the bubble that we've um, created over the last couple of years, especially. Absolutely, and I wanted to ask you um, about some of the players and some of the pieces that you've written, as well as the piece that I mentioned, because you've also written a piece with Steve Clark talking about Harvey Barnes and Elliot Anderson. We've just had Martin yeah. Hardy on the show talking about Anderson and Gareth Southgate's comments about the midfielder and his departure from the Scotland squad through injury. From the Scottish side, what is the view on the Anderson situation and on the potential for pinching Harvey Barnes as well? Yeah, I mean the Anderson one is is intriguing, isn't it? Because I mean he has kind of rebounded back and forth between the two nations. He played for Scotland at uh, at various youth levels, and then 
appear for England under under 19s, and then uh, uh, and then for Scotland under 21s. And now when Clark called him up to the senior squad for the for these two games, you would have assumed that everything had been settled. You know that Clark wouldn't um, expose himself or, or or the country to the kind of minor embarrassment of him pulling out. Now it, it, it it's a little bit unresolved, but we, we're led to believe that. Um, that, uh, that Anderson has has taken second thoughts about uh, committing to Scotland. We actually said to Clark on Friday night, that, you know, bluntly, did he think he'd been kind of that Anderson had been kind of you know tapped up or or nobbled by England to to change his mind again? And he and he, he was quite convincingly said, I don't know. Um, I think we're we're all possibly thinking that is the case. It's a shame because Anderson's clearly an exciting player. Um, he would have uh, contributed to Scotland. I wonder now if that ship has sailed and we won't see him. Um, Barnes then? What about him? Barnes, I think, is probably more likely, isn't it? Because, um, you know, he, he there's a lot more traffic in his way to getting a game for England. He's, he's that bit older, um, 25, coming up 26, I think. Um, you know, he has kind of hedged his bets. Like a lot of players do if they've got the possibility to play for it for either nation. They do hedge their bets and see if England are interested. And we, we you know, we recognise that because the, the prospects of, you know, um, a, a more successful career, international career are obviously better with England in terms of going the distance in tournaments. Clark has been pretty successful in uh, persuading guys to come. Uh, you know, Shea Adams, yeah. Angus Gunn, even London Dykes, who hummed and hollowed about Australia for a while but really you know the player almost the player of the moment for Scotland is McTominay who um, Alec McLeish the previous manager uh, had to persuade to commit to Scotland McTominay's obviously born in Lancaster could have played for England um, so you know it's it's a kind of international trade isn't it you know that um, we, we do have to try and look around for players who, who are potentially eligible and certainly Barnes is the is the most, uh, you know, Barnes and Elliot are the most recent ones, but I, I could imagine Barnes coming through. Adams came through just before the last tournament, the Euros. Um, he was, you know, there was a little bit of uh, uh, kind of eye rolling about him suddenly making himself available just when Scotland had qualified for a tournament. But, you know, it, it is an incentive, it is an attractive thing for, for a player who could play for Scotland to think, well, yeah, they're pretty good now. They're qualifying for things, you know. I, I, maybe it's not the worst thing in the world for me to be part of that. Absolutely, pretty good. Going to reach a European semi-final, so I'm going to have to ask <laughs> you, Michael, just to finish, uh, and I'm going to ask the guys in the studio the same question. So don't worry, you won't be out on your own for a prediction. Two nil Scotland, three nil Scotland. What are we talking? Uh, listen, this really will come back and bite me. But come on, do it. Just do you it. You know, it's you fine. know what? I, I I was there the last time Scotland beat England at Hampden, which was in 1985. It's 1-0. They're good enough to beat them. They are good enough to beat. Them. I mean, listen, England could come up and be sober. England, England will be the best side that um, that Scotland have played under Steve Clark. But listen, you're putting me on the spot. I'm isolated. I'm outnumbered. <laughs> I've been bullied and harassed into giving you something that will embarrass me. So there we go. One nil Scotland. Good man. That's what we like to hear. You can come on. You can take Gregor's place. That bloke always sits <laughs> on the fence. Michael Grant, thank you very much for joining us on the game and enjoy the match tomorrow night. Thanks, guys. Thank you. So there we have it then. Nice bit of patriotism on a Monday morning and it leads us on nicely to our next segment in terms of getting to know Tom Kershaw.
How English are you, Tom? Uh, I'm half English, half Welsh. Oh. I have chosen the English side right. sport. Although I don't have a calf tattoo or a bucket hat. Fine. I probably won't wake up with a hangover after the friendly. But will you be watching? Will it? Does it matter? So this because this this does fascinate me because it is a friendly. It's England Scotland. You know, are we? Are, does it matter any more than if we were playing Latvia in a friendly? I think it matters for sort of tribal pride and, you know, people watching in the pub. And I think it's thrown up interesting questions from these two matches. Obviously, Scotland are coming in off a huge high and England mm. have these potential, you know, lingering questions. And there's a chance for sort of Southgate to throw off the shackles a bit now. There's nothing to worry about. He can try and play that free-flowing football that people obviously missed against Ukraine. And, I mean, I think England all will win, um, not to... You know, hedge my bets by thinking that well, you know, there won't be that much risk, and they can sort of go for it, and it'll be a real challenge. And Scotland, obviously, you know, it's it's been a while, as uh, as pointed out. So I think you know they'll go for it, and it, it's you know, it's a friendly. It'll feel like a competitive game, and you know, you've got players like Scott McTominay. Obviously, has a point to prove at Manchester United, and is playing. You know, when he goes to Scotland, plays like a completely different person. You know, it's like he's sort of broken out of prison to keep it topical. <laughs> <laughs> A sophisticated, <laughs> balanced answer there, Tom. You'll go far in the podcast land. Looking for a bit more uh, delusion and grandeur, Alison Rudd. What do you reckon? Five nil England. What are we talking? I think we're talking. What's interesting about it is that it's one team playing at home in a loud stadium, who are greater than the sum of their parts and have found a way to click, and 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 for individuals to play almost better than they do for their club sometimes which is the that's the secret ingredient for international football and England a team that are just jam-packed with amazing players with the calibre of where they've been in recent tournaments but I think it's I think it's more enjoyable to play for the former type of team the mm. team that's playing greater than the sum of its parts and is on a sort of um, slightly un. A non-forecast non trajectory. I don't think people thought Scotland would necessarily qualify so soon and so quickly and so emphatically in their group. I think I think they just need one result to go their way on Tuesday and they're through. Um, and that's amazing. But these these events are never... They're lovely to preview, but they're never quite as wonderful... Rarely as wonderful as you think they're going to be. It's quite likely to be nil-nil. Clip that up for Thursday's show. Let's make sure we've got that ready. Yeah, please so do. We've got please nil, do. Nil, nil, and also, you you know, I asked my kids. I said, "Is that a game that excites you?" No, not at all. I think young young yeah. generation, they're really into their football. The England v Scotland friendly sounds like a punishment, not a joy. I yeah. look forward to reading that match report. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, maybe we should send your kids along. <laughs> Take your, bring your kids yeah. to work day type thing. I mean, I've got to say, I, I, he felt like I'd uh, hung him out to dry there, but I'm actually slightly with Michael Grant. I think Scotland might surprise us a little bit in this game. Might not win, but I think it'll be a tight game. But we shall see. Uh, there's plenty more to come on the game podcast. We're going to be talking all things Saudi Arabia with Tom Kershaw, so stick with us. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back. You're listening to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Coming up, we've got lots and lots to talk about all things Saudi Arabia. But first, we have to react to the news that Louis Rubiales has resigned as the president of the Spanish Football Federation and as UEFA vice president after admitting that his position had become untenable amid the outcry over him kissing Spain's Jenny Amoso on the lips after the Women's World Cup final. He said in an interview with Piers Morgan, which we believe is going to be coming out this week, I cannot continue my work after the rapid suspension carried out by FIFA, plus the rest of the proceedings opened against me, it is evident that I will not be able to return to my position. Alison Rudd, is this sorry, not sorry? <laughs> he's not sorry at all. He's actually trying to package it so that he he's the victim. Mm. He's the victim of, um, well, he's already called it fake feminism, but his his standing in the his community, his workplace and his family has come under attack and his family and his work mates are behind him and he's only doing it because they said you've got to think about yourself you mustn't worry about other people you've got to worry about your own mental health and really do it just do it now and maybe one day things will get better for you but you you know you are the victim in this it, it ah and to think that he if he'd if this had been one moment of exuberance gone wrong and he'd recognised it immediately, he probably could still have carried on in his role. But clearly, <laughs> I don't feel any sympathy for him now at all because he he simply doesn't get it. Mm. He doesn't real yeah, clearly doesn't realise why people wanted him out yeah. or why it was inappropriate, why it spoke of things far bigger than than him and his job. This was about a wonderful moment in female sporting history that he has single-handedly ruined mm. as a man. And it's not, you know, let's not forget, this isn't a uh, flirty thing or a sex thing. This is a power thing. Mm. This is men, a man, and a group of men who supported him, thinking this is a wonderful moment in sport. We we want our hands literally all over it, as well yeah. as metaphorically over it. This is This is down to us. This is... Please, everyone, look at me because this is my my work that you're seeing come to fruition here. And instead of being deferential to the the women involved, he just wanted to take ownership of it. And it's been 
it's been distasteful. It's It means that everyone will remember all the wrong things about what was a very, very promising World Cup tournament that was hosted beautifully. And for the most part, a lot of the football was great. It just was great. It was mm. competitive. Um, th there were uncompetitive moments, but we get those. We get those in men's rugby and we get those in men's football as well. So just let, it was a chance to focus on the progress that women's football has made and it's been spoiled. And I'm really interested to hear the full interview because he's, he's clearly decided to package this as as a way of trying to save his career and still somehow stamp his authority on the world of football. Mm. Deluded chap. Yeah, well, you talk about listening to the full interview and it will be fascinating, but it's interesting, um, as you allude to there, that he talks about, oh, I have to take um, responsibility for this because it will help Spain in the future, talking about future bids for World Cups and European Championships and things, but doesn't seem to really address the fact that, as you say, I ruined my team's tournament victory do you think now that we've gone so far down the path that we can't get back to enjoying spain's glorious win in the world cup for football which as you say it was they beat england they were the better team they probably should have won by two or three no it's become a postscript tom yeah. so whenever anyone writes about this or discusses it they write about the behaviour of the men involved and the history of the behaviour of the men involved because this isn't just one act This the, the, there was a lot wrong with the way the, the Spanish team was run and, you know, the, play, the players were on were on strike before the before the tournament even began they yeah. just walked out 15 of them this isn't just one isolated instance but what, what happens now is we talk about the politics uh, the gender politics and what's happened and then people say as a postscript let's not forget how technically superior Spain were or how, how well they did and what great individual players they've got. It's a postscript, it's a postscript. And because they're, they're now in dispute over the amount of money they're paid, um, it's, going to, it's, it's all about the politics and the football second. But in fact, ironically, the fact you can produce such excellent football and camaraderie under such conditions mm. requires extra praise from us all. Maybe yeah. one maybe one day, maybe they'll come another tournament and we will at last be able to just sort of wallow in how good they are. But for now, we're not, no. Yeah, well, we'll end on the note of extra praise, I think, for, for the time being, because we have to move on uh, and talk to Tom. This is the Tom, the, the Tom, the Tom show. Yeah, very glamorous. Yeah. <laughs> Couldn't have done a better studio. Exactly. Though. Well, the reason, the main reason that you're here, Tom, is that for the last few weeks, we find ourselves talking about Saudi Arabia and football. And I always end each segment saying, well, we could do a whole show on Saudi Arabia. Mm. And it then it occurred to me, I haven't actually got the bloke on who's been to Saudi Arabia <laughs> to, to write all these wonderful pieces for the Times. Um, you have been. You visited uh, a good yeah. couple of weeks ago. Is that right? I went for the start of the first week of the Pro League season, but then I've been... Well, yes, yeah, you keep sending me there. I'm starting to think about <laughs> take up residency forms. Hopefully not. Uh, but, uh, yeah, no, I've been there four, four times now, I think, twice for football. Um, the Anthony Joshua fight last year and the, the Grand Prix. Yeah. So I've seen the sort of different atmospheres around the different sports. So starting then with atmosphere and the country itself and its response to sport, because we hear about it from afar. We talk about these huge sums of money. Tell us about those trips to those games, the start of the Pro League season and being in the ground, because you were telling me before the show some really fascinating details about how, how the fans engage with football. Yeah, I think there's there are probably some misconceptions about what the football culture is like there. Because uh, you know you sort of see maybe it stems from the Qatar World Cup, and you think 
there's going to be empty arenas or these fans are going to be you know fake fans who where are they coming from but actually well i think you know some of those fake fans came from came from saudi arabia yeah and uh it's you know it's interesting comparing it to the boxing it was when Nancy joshua there was a very hollow atmosphere and you know very few people there and then you you go to the first game on the friday night which was in Jeddah, which was al ali one of the four pif owned clubs who've you know signed Firmino, mendy and one of these glamorous uh yeah the ones the others are jealous of to put it that way right against a very one of the very low level clubs who just got promoted and uh you know they had about 40 fans there but i mean we got there two hours before the stadium it was about twenty five thousand, it's half full uh, and they're, you know, they're singing. Two hours before. Yeah, they're singing. They're outside. They're congregating. Bear in mind, you know, they're not drinking. It's genuine fandom. It's not like they're all there meeting up and uh, having a conversation. I mean, yeah. they're they're all there. They're all got scarves. It's forty five degrees. They're all waving scarves. An hour before kickoff, they've got the drums and the flares. And you know, it's hard to compare the atmosphere. I mean, the atmosphere it sounds sort of, oh, you, you're on the payroll saying this, but uh, I mean, compared to a Premier League game, it, the atmosphere was you know, completely different. That you know. The chanting is non-stop. There's flares going off every two minutes. When someone misses a chance, you know it's sort of like the, the sigh of you know someone's died. I mean, it really is. You know, Mendy made a mistake in that game, uh, which will be comforting to Chelsea fans who are glad he's gone. <laughs> and uh, I mean, it was you know like the whole place went silent, and it was sort of like a funeral. And then two minutes later, they score, and it, it was you know, it was like being in a stadium of eighty thousand people. It really is um, an interesting culture in terms of the football, the fans, because. I guess that's why the football there is so such a valuable social tool. Which obviously that's a rabbit hole you can rabbit hole you can go down forever. But you know they really do get into it. There, it's not like maybe these one-off exhibitions. There's mm. you know they're. Really... It's not a, you know it's not a rabbit hole to go mm. down there because they haven't got. They're like this because there's nothing else for them. There's young people, especially young men. This is their outlet, isn't yeah. it? They don't have anywhere else where they can congregate and sing and be Western. Yeah, because I think well up until sort of the changes that have happened in the country, football culture was sort of the fans were there, but it was sort of suppressed because maybe in the Arab Spring, the involvement of football fans there, obviously there's a huge fear of protest and obviously large groups of people and, and football obviously has those sort of political links to it in terms of ultras. Um, I mean, it's certainly, it's a different kind of culture in terms of they're not, you know, going to protest against the owners. They're not going to be outside. You know, it's no. a different kind of fandom. Um but it is, you know, they've got. It, it's what I mean by the rabbit hole is this sort of the arguments of the, the sports washing and the cleansing of the reputation side, and what is genuine and what's sort of uplifting the population there. Because there are, I mean, it is striking. I'm not the thinnest person in the world, but you know, they do have an extremely high obesity rate there, and there's, I think, one of the highest rates in the world of type two diabetes. So when you speak to people there, they're like, this is a way to energize a young population who, you know. As you say, they don't have these places. There's not really a built-in sports culture as much, and you know they see this as a way to kind of energize a population that's somewhat uh, unproductive. Is the word that people over there use, which sounds harsh, but that is what uh, you know the message is. And this is a way to kind of galvanize a, a population that's sort of been starved of um, you know they're Western-facing, but they haven't been able to sort of engage in those cultures. Of, What's the know. socio-economic profile of people attending the games? Uh, I mean, I think it's it would be comparable to you know they're they're normal local Saudi Arabian people. It's not a sort of uh, corporate box kind of attendance. It's you know I mean uh, the game in uh, Riyadh, which was the sort of friendly in uh, December or January, the sort of Messi Ronaldo friendly. I went up and sat in the stands for a while there, and I was next to a guy with a 
you know, I don't think it was even a Nokia phone. It was one of those sort of brick phones you'd see in, you know, a, a music video from uh, 2002, you know. So it wasn't, and, you know, there's lots of people without tickets for that game who'd sort of come in. Obviously, it's not, uh, it wasn't as, you know, it was more organised than that for the, the start of the produce season. But, you know, they're proper football fans and they, I mean, I mean, the fervour was, yeah, basically incomparable, as I say, to, mm. you know, there's a, a ground the size of maybe a stadium of a, a Bournemouth and you know but it felt like you were in a, a real sort of cauldron like atmosphere yeah one of the things I wanted to ask about you touched on very briefly there was the, the heat and the temperature mm. and you know this influx of European players particularly Jordan Henderson you were there for his debut uh, and you wrote a really interesting piece which was quite largely about uh, him feeling the heat on yeah. his debut tell us a bit more about that yeah, I think I was sort of reflecting my own suffering <laughs> uh, I mean it was sort of indescri- I mean it was 45 degrees in the day so it is a kind of no, I, I don't know if I'm well travelled enough. I certainly hadn't walked outside like that. You know, nine p.m. they kick off. Like you know, over there they have to train in the evening. It would just be simply impossible to play in the day. But you know, nine p.m. the humidity and in, in demand where where Henderson and Gerard are based is, I mean, it was it felt like you were, it was hard to breathe. You know, it was suffocating. You've got Jordan Henderson who is, you know, he, he's gone there, but clearly, as he said in his interview recently, you know, he did a very intense preseason. He's always been known as a hard worker. Uh, you know, very fit player, and within ten minutes, um, he was sort of down on his haunches, looking like you know, uh, he might be sort of calling for some sort of inhaler anytime soon. I mean, it was really tough to watch, and then you know, he'd be trudging around, and you'd sort of see him going to, you know, do what that's, that's what he does as a captain, and sort of energising, pointing to people, you know, run there, and then he would go and start the driving run, and then five steps later, it would be like sort of a film, you know, or like an evolution chart going backwards <laughs> and just sort of receding into himself, and. You know, half time. I remember he walked off. Uh, you know, I, I to be honest, I would would have loved a cold towel on my own neck. But you know, he walked down the tunnel with a towel around his neck, sort of really, uh, yeah, looking like he'd sort of. Uh, it was a baptism of fire in a little literal sense as well. But um, you know, I spoke to a coach uh, from one of the clubs there, Al Ittihad, who uh, you know they're the defending champions, and he said, you know, the hardest thing for these players coming over. It sounds like the most obvious thing in the world to say, but it is the heat because you can't train at anywhere near the same intensity. Um, it's just would be impossible. You know, and you mm. train in the evenings. It's a completely different way of 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 life, really. You know, yeah. tr- playing football over there. Are the um, training setups? You know, you talk about these players coming in. Are the mm. training setups at a level that they would expect these top players, or are they, is it a case of where they're going to be playing catch up a little bit? I think they're definitely playing catch up because obviously you know the, the first thing to do is get the players and then I think they're kind of building everything else around that. So I mean I know I've spoken to quite a few coaches so that the changes are happening and it's almost that those foreign players or foreign coaches are kind of helping them direct you know well this is what's missing this is what we need. I think you know Ronaldo Al Nasser has taken quite a first hand role in pointing out you know what's lacking and you know, some people you speak to at some of the top clubs you know there's only one full working training pitch um which obviously if you've seen pictures of london colney seems hard to imagine that you know then at al hilal which is the biggest club and uh, they have slightly better facilities but you know you have neymar going from psg and i'm sure their campus feels like you know a palace of kindness to be there it's it's certainly a race to catch up but they know that and i do think the willingness is there because they you know they they don't want this first wave of players to come and then start texting all their mates going it's awful here you know, <laughs> so they they live in very glamorous uh, gated communities compounds you know i think every need is is met so to speak and you know they want the training facilities the the, the message they give to the players obviously the players are coming for the money i don't think anyone could 
reasonably argue that but from the Saudi Arabian perspective they want it to be seen as this is the top one of the top leagues in the world we've got some of the best facilities in the world if you come here it's not going to be any different uh, mm. so there, there is the urgency to catch up but you can't you know it's easier to pay an agent a sizable commission than it is to uh, you know, build an entire new training ground yeah did you, you did you did you find sorry Tom no, did you find yourself it. sitting there plotting a graph of how long how many minutes or hours it's going to take for Jordan Henderson to just become not fit uh, enough to play for England I mean, I thought... I says, thought said like a yeah. bitter Liverpool fan. <laughs> <laughs> I think it became clear within minutes of that opening game that it would be hard to justify from a footballing perspective Henderson playing for England based on the performances there because it's so radically different. You know, the pace of the game is so stop-start. Um, and, and the levels in training is obviously they've got these good players coming in who are some of the best players in the world, even if they are slightly older, but... The squads, you know, there's eight foreign players allowed in, in each squad. And some of those players, the, the local players at, at the bottom end, you know, uh, some coaches said to me they'd be at League One, League Two level. You know, obviously Henderson's there to help raise that level, but he's training with, you know, compare that to what he's training with at Liverpool or mm. England. So he he's not going to lose his talent overnight or his desire overnight, clearly. But if you're spending every day training with those kinds of players, um, you know, who obviously not to be disrespectful but it's not the, it's just not the same yeah. so then to come in to an England training camp and expect to get back to the level you were training under Jurgen Klopp in the space of you know two days mm. it's it just seems unrealistic especially at his age so is that then across the board you talk about the pace of the game you know obviously you talked uh, very eloquently there about Henderson and his kind of you know so Darwinian-esque sure yeah. you know <laughs> kind of uh, descending back into himself but is that across across the pitch as well? You know, local Saudi players, is the game slower generally because of the heat and the conditions and the, the fitness levels? Or or is it a case that these European players are coming over and being mm. ran past by people who are more used to the conditions? I mean, I think it probably balances out because the top European players might come from a more intense training regime anyway, so they might be working off a you know, more athletic base, but it's very hard to adjust to the climate. So um, the, the games themselves, it's not that than unexciting you know some of them are quite high scoring the defending obviously isn't you know as as compact sometimes you know it's certainly not like in england ukraine um you know some of the games are are exciting i guess the more flaws the more open it is but it's that it's it's more stop start you have sort of these firework moments um and then the great atmosphere and it perfectly packages up into a you know, a great highlight reel uh which is obviously what they want people to see it's just you have these Ten, five ten minute periods then after after a moment like that where it's sort of everyone's just trying to sort of gather up steam again to you know, to soldier on mm. now we talked about some of the players that have gone over there um one of the pieces you did while you're out there was speaking to michael emanalo who's the pro league director formerly of chelsea of course uh, and in that piece very bullishly shockingly forgiven his role he said that all the top players will end up in the saudi pro league uh, what what was your reflections on speaking to him and talking to him about his, the kind of that that ambitious take? Yeah, I mean, I think the ambition is very real. Obviously, I think Michael Emanalo obviously has worked in football a long time. He's worked at Chelsea, you know, at a time where they weren't exactly spending uh, in little amounts. So mm. I think he knows uh, he knows what's what's the right thing to say is to send that message. But I, you know, it's 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 like the Saudis' involvement in all sport. They don't want to be seen as treading lightly. You know, the the goal is to. You know, as he said, to transform it into one of the best leagues in the world in the space of two years. So, and the the budget, obviously, someone did ask him what's the budget, which you know didn't quite open up the Ministry of Sports coffers. But you know, it's essentially bottomless. Um, 
So, you know, that was before the Neymar deal that I spoke to him and he said, don't worry, you know, there'll be something big in the next couple of days. Mm. And I, I think, you know, after the fact, you go, oh, Neymar, well, yeah, it seems obvious. But the, the scale of the players who've come in, I think, you know, Michael Emanalo came in halfway through during this transfer window to kind of add a bit of order and, and structure and kind of be a work in the middle with the, between the clubs and um, and the pro league executives because it's all a very centralised structure and someone who knows football and how to interact with the agents etc but um, you know I think the, the appetite from players to come there they originally the briefings you'd hear would be oh, we, we want five big superstars you know it's not it's not going to be a live golf spend ridiculous amounts of money and get them all and then they got those five names and they realised well actually so and so wants to come and it's sort of dominoes to the, mm. so this domino effect where maybe they thought originally they'd end up with five extremely good players and a few aging well-known players around them and then actually they go well you know if we can get them now why not because there is no limit so get them while you can and ride the wave yeah you alluded to it there the process by which players are signed because this is it was actually the name ideal when I, I was on the editing desk again and the call goes up. There's a Saudi transfer. Quick, ring Tom Kershaw. Yeah, I dread uh, those calls. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's why it always takes a couple of rings to get Oh, of I see. Now it makes sense. But <laughs> you were explaining to me during that, that call how the deals actually work. And it's not uh, maybe how some listeners might imagine. And it's not necessarily a conventional transfer in that a club goes and tries to sign a player. Mm. It's a, it, it is that centralised fund. Explain to us a bit more about how a transfer actually works in terms of yeah, Saudi so deals. Each club is sort of allocated... A budget by the Ministry of Sport, so it's all centralised, and they report all of their you know, checks and balances to the Ministry of Sport, which is is not just a result of wanting to transform the league. It's because in the past it was kind of run in a sort of chaotic, shambolic way that the clubs would lose money and have to be bailed out by the state. So the state has now sort of taken hold of it and gone, "We're going to turn this into you know, privatise it," as they say, even if it is still really state controlled, mm-hmm. and turn it into a proper functioning league that can create revenues and you know eventually profit. No. You say profit, but however realistic that seems. So these clubs, they would have that, but that sort of base budget, they can top that up. I think with you know private donations. So obviously some of the well-supported clubs like a Al Hilal, you hear stories about businessmen sort of you know putting on a plane for a player. Um, and then so the as far as I know, those clubs would draw up a list of the potential targets they want, especially at the four PIF clubs, which obviously have an enormous budget compared to the rest. They would have a list of targets, but. They would then go and start the negotiations themselves. There's a sort of clause so they don't compete against each other. Mm. So that if one club says, "Oh, we're in negotiations with Alex Tellers," it wouldn't go. We're going to out, you know, we're going to outbid them and yeah. drive up the price. You know, I think the prices are already so high that the negotiations kind of taken out of it in that sense because they know the deal can get done. So there's not as much bartering. So they and then when the deal has moved to a place where you know, the, the personal terms are pretty close to being done and transfer fees quite close to agree, being agreed then they take it to I, I think Michael Emanalo going forwards will be the person that helps sort of approve that and stamps you know, stamps the deal but I think in this transfer window it's gone straight to the top of the Pro League and the PIF um, you know, when deals are done uh, they'll the, the agents will initially start negotiating with a club but then when the deal's being signed you know they've, they've spoken about it's pretty noticeable that suddenly, you know, there's someone from the PF, there's someone from the Ministry of Sport, there, there's someone from the Pro League there, and they're giving the authority basically for this for the deal to be done. Nothing could, you couldn't have a big transfer done without them rub stamping the deal mm. effectively. So there is this overseeing, you know, this oversight that basically nothing can happen outside of their control. So mm. every target, every target that comes in, 
they've they've had a the final say on choosing. Yeah, Alison, how does that make you feel as a football journalist of many years and a football fan? That idea that transfers are so centrally controlled that there's no, you know, there's no Manchester United and Manchester City go head to head to try and <laughs> sign this person. It's all just centrally controlled and all mapped out quite no, methodically. It's, 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 it's Enid Blyton Noddy Land, isn't it? It's not <laughs> real at all. I mean, and and I think the bubble might burst quite quickly because these players are going over and struggling with facilities being not as good as they used to, training not being as good as they used to, and the heat being completely debilitating, and knowing that people are questioning their legacy and their motivation. Um, I think I think one of the, the, sort of the worst PR gaffes of the year so far has been Jordan Henderson trying to pretend that it's not money that is the reason he's gone, because no one believes him. And I think that will mean that players will start to stop getting stu- uh, completely bedazzled and delighted by the sheer amount of money involved and think, I I am selling my soul to the devil here and it will be as hot as hell. So why would I why would I do that? I don't I don't see a fairy tale outcome where these players go and they integrate beautifully with homegrown players and we get some wonderful football emerging, a sort of hybrid version of Middle East meets West, and it's it, it the temperature doesn't matter. It will it will always matter. I think I think this is a a rather fantastical, ridiculous phase we're in at the moment. The the, the Tom's description of the transfer system makes perfect sense for the culture that they're operating mm. in. That is how they would do it because it is ultimately about Saudi Arabia, not the individual club. It's about how they are. It's partly about making sure the local youth is engaged and active and not bored, but it's also partly about how they are seen externally. And so you'd want it to be done in a more professional manner and the only way to make it professional is for it to be centralised. It's counterintuitive to us. That, that to me, from their point of view, makes sense because they are they are building from a low base and, and rapidly growing. But I cannot, I just, from everything you've said, I cannot see it continuing mm. in this vein. I mean, I think the idea is that they have this centralised model and then the clubs learn how to operate in that fashion and then over time could operate more independently and I think it is, you know, obviously it's happening so fast, There are it is changing as it's going along because this summer Mohamed Salah is linked to obviously going to Al-Itihad, next summer they're saying that it could be Al-Halal, so mm-hmm. there is still that competitive rivalry, it's just this huge focus on the four PIF-owned clubs and turning them into these giants I think that can attract the attention the league wants. Mm-hmm. Um, which I suppose we've got a two-tiered league as well, so it's yeah. not. It's just been happening in a much more, uh, I suppose, manufactured kind of way. Yeah. How do you think they would respond to Alison's idea that it's a fantastical phase that will burn bright and but burn out quite quickly? Uh, I don't think it will go away personally anytime soon. I don't. You know, if people compared it at the beginning to China, mm. um, which obviously burst pretty emphatically. Uh, but I don't, uh, from what I'm told, the budget's sort of already been measured out for the next six or seven years. And 
know, with all these Saudi Arabian sporting ventures, it's, they're contracted, you know, the world's best consultancies. And the, 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 it's not just a scattergun approach. I mean, every year is sort of detailed out as what their plan is, whether that comes to fruition, uh, maybe it won't. But if they're already exceeding perhaps the number of players they wanted now in one summer, uh, and, the, and you know, there was no indication that next summer wouldn't be the same, um, I, I suppose the long-term goal that they obviously wouldn't address directly is to maybe have one of these showpiece clubs play in the Champions League with mm. all these players that we know and you know obviously that we know that Saudi Arabia is very interested in hosting the World Cup in, in 2034 so I, I, I find it I don't see the reason to stop because it's not the money it's not losing the money that's the concern so I don't if it's going well and clearly it is going well if you compare it to how sort of live golf started up and not getting a TV contract which is something people have mentioned to me and you know now they've got a broadcasting deal with zone and broadcast mm. 130 territories i'm not saying i'm watching <laughs> the games every week but clearly it is working in that sense and having you know, someone like neymar and, and ronaldo i don't think it can burst as quickly you know the players are going to be there they're all on three-year contracts but most of these big names um and as we saw towards the end of the window some younger players who you probably didn't expect to come i mean from syria you know syria have lost yeah. their two syria midfielders of the year in brozovic and milinkovic savic and Gabri Vega from La Liga, you know, obviously an exciting 21-year-old player that you know, a lot of clubs in Europe are looking at Manchester City, Napoli and to go to Saudi Arabia. I don't think, I don't think it will disappear overnight. Maybe mm. it won't work. I'm not saying it's it's going to work mm. necessarily, but I think you know the the ambition in Saudi Arabia is pretty uh, uh, stunning. You know, in and no, I don't not necessarily don't say stunning in a positive sense, but you know you are all. It's pretty awe-striking in terms of yeah. that. There's no limits really, so yeah. it's it's only going to turn off if if the crown prince decides to turn it off. Yeah. And we, as we saw in like the summit a couple of days ago, he was saying the idea is to turn the Middle East into the new Europe. So I yeah. don't think it's going to stop yeah. anytime soon. Absolutely fascinating. I wanted to finish not at the top end, but at slightly lower down because another piece that you got from your trip out there was an interview with Robbie Fowler, mm. uh, who is managing in the Saudi second division. Um, and he talked quite candidly about his experience in management not being on the big books that everyone would perhaps assume. And just just give us a sense of both of his journey, but also where it puts, you know, in the context of this big, big money and this big spending, because it doesn't always work all the way down and not all these clubs have got mm. loads of money, have they? No, not all. The, I mean, that I would say comparatively, the lower the lower down clubs, where, where Robbie Fowler is, um, Al Kadzia, you know, it's still owned by a, an oil giant. So mm. the money is there. I think it's just, Previously, there hasn't been the willingness to invest it in the club. Maybe right. it's just a toy thing to have or, you know, yeah, we've got our own club, here it is. But I think the idea is they want to sort of, once you've had these four giants, to sort of really trickle it down a bit more because otherwise, you know, it's, it's not going to be a stable foundation. And Robbie Fowler obviously talked a lot about opening up pathways and that his job is to sort of also coach local coaches who can take over from him but he he first went to that club as a consultant he wasn't actually planning on becoming a the head coach you know so his a bit like we were talking earlier about players coming in to you know help the training ground you know he came in he rebuilt the club's training ground i visited it there and you know it was for a for a championship club i, I don't the facilities they, they weren't as large it's in the middle of a city but they were you know modern facilities and and I don't think players would, you know, see them and go, "Oh God, I I couldn't play here." Right. Um, for him, it's, uh, I suppose, on the one hand, he would say, "Well, I said, wouldn't you rather be trying to manage a championship club?" Uh, and he went, "Well, they they won't have me, so yeah. why wouldn't I come here?" And he's already managed in sort of India, Thailand, Australia, 
uh, I think his perception is that he deserves an opportunity and he's done all the coaching badges to sort of try and I think break the, the old perceptions people people might have about him to sort of prove he wants to be a serious coach um, so I think for him it was a case of is this or nothing and I can build something here because they're taking the investment seriously so he signed you know Max Power from Wigan which mm. you know it's it's a good signing to take to a club yeah. that good player. You know, I, I can't imagine most people on the streets have heard of um, so you know the, the desire the pulls there this money's still there obviously to bring them um, and he has the chance to sort of take this club which obviously yes it's, it's a smaller club but if he can take them into the pro league and have a good season then he can become a manager in you know what the the most lucrative you know place he can be because he's not going to get a premier league job so mm. i think for him it's a no lose situation yeah absolutely fascinating you can read all of tom's articles if you search for his name on the times website now tom kershaw what a debut on the games podcast hey I don't think I'll be coming back soon. No, you will. Absolutely. <laughs> well, Saudi Arabia's not going away, so you'll, yeah. you'll, you'll be off on another visit, I'm sure, very, very soon. Alison Rudd, thank you very much for joining us, as usual. Michael Grant and Martin Hardy, thank you very much. Uh, and we'll be back on Thursday to talk about England 4, Scotland 5, and that absolute <laughs> thriller at Hampden Park. Thanks for listening. Listener.